From Foreign Policy and the Brookings Institution, we bring you And Now the Hard Part. I'm Jonathan Tepperman. On each episode, we examine one vexing problem, trace its origin, and offer a way forward. Today, how to reverse the global drift towards authoritarianism. From France's Front National to Germany's Alternative for Deutschland to the neo-Nazis of Golden Dawn in Greece, far-right populists are grabbing the headlines and seem to be on the rise across Europe. In November, tens of thousands of people joined a nationalist march in Poland featuring both Islamophobes and anti-Semites. Viktor Orban rapidly becoming the scourge of Brussels and the leader of a powerful authoritarian movement in Eastern Europe. In the last few years, Netanyahu has embraced nationalists, populists, and strongmen leaders, like Duterte of the Philippines. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. Our guest today is Brookings President John Allen. General Allen earned four stars during a long career in the Marine Corps, where he served, among many other roles, as the commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan and as the U.S. presidential envoy to the global coalition to counter the Islamic State. Okay, so General Allen, how would you summarize the problem? Well, as we emerged from the Cold War, I think that there was... Uh, a legitimate uh, reason for us to believe that the arc of history was going to deliver us at some point in the future at a time when democracy would be uh, institutionalized around the globe, uh, very strong democracies that facilitated a global trading network, a commitment to human rights, etc. I think we all hoped we would be there and we sensed that that was where we were headed. The idea that if Maybe history hadn't quite ended, but uh, right. there was a clear consensus that democracy and, and free trade were the way forward and that more and more and more countries would continue joining that. Right. Uh, but as time has gone on, um, that issue is less clear. And in the last decade and in the last few years, we have seen a real slip, I think, uh, in the context of both the attractiveness of democracy and the endurance of democratic institutions and democratic forms of government. And we were flush uh, with enthusiasm coming off the Cold War. And much of that, of course, had been a function of American leadership in the post-World War II era and in the, uh, the period of time of the Cold War itself. So there was this sense, and I, I believe that we probably overestimated uh, the likelihood that democracy would take root. First of all, we had opponents. Uh, we had opponents that were authoritarian or totalitarian. Uh, we had opponents that were illiberal, and they're just not interested in adopting the democratic trajectory that we were espousing. Russian police detained as many as 30 gay rights activists who took part in an unsanctioned rally in St. Petersburg. A few dozen activists... There are growing the fears the Chinese government may use the military to crack down on protesters in Hong Kong. Flights have resumed at the city's airport after... I assume you're referring here to Russia and China principally? Russia, China, uh, other states uh, in the Middle East and North Africa and other places. So that was the first thing. Perhaps we overestimated the likelihood that we would see democracy take root in the ways we had hoped. The second is this: the sense that globalization in many respects, that created this global trading enterprise and network wasn't delivering in many respects for large segments of populations around the world. 
Uh, and as globalization continued on, as many became quite wealthy as a result of globalization, there were large segments in the world that benefited little from globalization or, in fact, were disenfranchised by it. So there was this sense of frustration because as they failed to realize direct personal benefit from the realities of globalization, and as they expressed themselves uh, on this matter, it seemed that political elites were impervious uh, to their sense of distress and their sense of despair. So I think that's another area, the fact that globalization did not deliver to the level of the expectations of many of the people in the world who felt that they'd been left behind. And they've been left behind at the expense, not just of themselves and parts and segments of their society, but they had been left behind by their political elites as well, who were willing to see this happen. It was a manic Monday in the financial markets. The Dow tumbled more than 500 One points. One was the economic downturn of 2008. Weekly jobless claims hit a 26-year high, with companies quickening the pace of cuts. So if you're already feeling as though globalization has not delivered for you, this economic shock took any doubt out of your mind. Uh, and as we saw economies around the world struggling, uh, obviously, with the, the reality of what this shock was, uh, both what it meant and how hard it would be to recover, this, I think, in many respects, it had the effect of breaking the social contract in many of these countries between those who were reeling from the effects of globalization and now reeling from the, if you will, the localized economic uh, reaction to the uh, global economic downturn. General Motors is closing four truck and SUV plants in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, affecting 10,000 workers as surging fuel prices hasten a dramatic shift. So we, we had a whole variety of these matters. And the last of the shocks came in 14 and 15, which was the widespread migration out of the Middle East of conflict migrants and refugees and economic migrants and refugees. Talking about people coming from Syria, from Syria North and, Africa. Syria, North Africa, and Afghanistan, actually. Mm -hmm. This morning, Pope Francis called on religious communities to welcome the hundreds of thousands of migrants, many of them refugees from war-torn Syria, who've tried to escape to a better life. After being stranded in Hungary for days, many have found safe passage to Germany and Austria. And so you, you had segments of the population that in many respects had lost trust in their political elites. They were economically disadvantaged. These are Europeans. Here These are Europeans, but mm -hmm. in the United States as mm -hmm. well in some respects. Not, not the migration issue, but we've made migration an issue for political purposes in many respects. Um, the effect of the downturn. And then as these elements of the population, uh, out of a sense of mistrust for the political elites, out of a sense of cynicism that democracy was not delivering for them, they began to listen very intently to those voices of populism, those voices that promised an improvement in their lives economically, an improvement in democracy, frankly, as they would be able to deliver it. Those voices uh, that promised uh, were received, I think, with a lot of enthusiasm in many of these countries. From France's Front National to Germany's alternative for Deutschland to the neo-Nazis of Golden Dawn in Greece, far-right populists are grabbing the headlines and seem to be on the rise across Europe. Can you point to specific policy mistakes that the United States made that contributed to this process? For example, did the uh, U.S. response to 9-11 make things worse? Did Iraq uh, make all of this worse? And how? So we were focused in a very 
real and nearly uh, constant way uh, on dealing with uh, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. The, the Afghan war, of course, was in many respects thrust upon us. I think the decision ultimately for the war in Iraq was a terrible decision, and we'll be reaping the negativity of that for another generation if we're lucky. But these two things really, uh, if you will, sucked up a lot of our capacity to focus internationally. And in doing so, I think we, we uh, took our eye off the ball in uh, many respects. And again, I assume you're talking about Russia and China primarily? That's correct. Um, but uh, as we sought to organize to deal with these problems, it became more difficult in some respects for many of our partners to be with us on these issues. And as the United States became distracted, uh, we put less emphasis on the strength that comes from multilateral both multilateral commitments to organizations, but also multilateral solutions to problems. You know, as late as the, uh, the Islamic State, Daesh, uh, that we had to deal with, there was real American leadership in that regard by President Obama's decision to call for a global coalition uh, to counter the Islamic State, but that would not have happened without American leadership. I also leave here confident that NATO allies and partners are prepared to join in a broad international effort to combat the threat posed by ISIL. And, and yes, uh, the American military has the capacity for global reach, but in the end it is the global reach and the global leadership of the United States which could be present at any given moment to help the world through its most difficult moments, whether it's Ebola, whether it's SARS, whether it's Al-Qaeda, whether it's the Islamic State, whether it's an economic downturn, the United States would be there. And the exercise of American willingness to lead and the capacity then to lead was what made us exceptional in many respects. Yeah, there's a lot of emphasis for obvious reasons on the unconventional side of Fed policy in 08. The bailouts, taking equity stakes in banks or quantitative easing. But what really made the difference in the survival of the American and the global banking system in September 2008 was indeed liquidity provision. So you've argued that the United States hasn't done enough to stand up against powerful authoritarian regimes like China and Russia. But does the United States also bear responsibility to the rise of authoritarianism in uh, the West, uh, in countries like Poland and in Hungary? Viktor Orban rapidly becoming the scourge of Brussels and the leader of a powerful authoritarian... Um, which now have semi-authoritarian governments or the rise of the National Front in France. Monsieur Le Pen's right-wing anti-immigration rhetoric. Uh, or the, um, some would say, authoritarian turn of Netanyahu and his government in Israel. Mm -hmm. What's the U.S. role in, in those shifts? Well, again, uh, living by example is one of the most important things that we have to do with respect to our relations in Europe. These changes are gradual. They're incremental. They appear to occur within the context and processes of democracy. And by the time often that you realize that the slip has occurred, it is entrenched in many respects within what is left of the democracy of that country. When we talk about the U.S. and its responsibility, do you see the American failure to stand up to authoritarian states and to lead by example as a failure of will, as a failure of choice, or as the product of a broken system and a result of things like the terrible gridlock and uh, partisanship in the United States that have made speaking with any kind of a unified voice on foreign policy so much more difficult? 
um, some of these changes towards illiberalism or authoritarianism are so incremental and so gradual that the point where an intervention might have been that moment that could have reversed that change, that slippage, that's difficult to see in retrospect. So I don't think it was an absence of American will. It was probably the fact that the United States, as it watched this occur, did not act decisively at any particular moment to try to reverse those changes. And it could have been uh, affected by a change in our diplomacy. It could have been an, uh, affected in a change by a change in our economic relationship with them, our trading relationship, our willingness to dispense uh, foreign aid. All of those potential levers, shy of, of military intervention, are available to us. But when we are reluctant to intervene or when there are powerful forces to prevent our willingness to intervene, and we see this as a, an incremental moment-to-moment -moment change, we can find ourselves waking up one morning and we have an illiberal state and wondering how it got there because there was no coup. In fact, it was the democratic processes that were seized and corrupted unto themselves which delivered this populist regime to a point where it can point to a democracy, but it's really not a democracy as we understand it. Vladimir Putin has renewed his vice-like grip on power, seizing a fourth term as Russia's president. There was no meaningful opposition, and there were widespread accusations... Do you worry that the United States itself, under President Donald Trump, is becoming more illiberal and authoritarian? I do. Look, we, uh, we are unique in the world uh, in that our founders, in both the promise of our founders, which was enshrined in the Declaration of Independence and the fulfillment of that promise, which comes to us in the Constitution, which I spent a large part of my life swearing to give my life to defend, um, they created an enormously powerful document to restrain tendencies towards illiberalism and authoritarianism. And the idea of the three branches of government enshrined in Articles 1, 2, and 3 of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights and the succession of amendments, the difficulty in changing the Constitution, all of those are uh, important tensions that we create in a system to preclude the rise of a particular individual. Our Constitution is extraordinarily hard to change, to amend. And the founders saw that. So while there could be instincts and reflexes that we hear or we read in the tweets, et cetera, that would lead us to believe that there would be a, a, a willingness to become more authoritarian or liberal, for example, the I hereby order American companies out of China. The president has no authority to order private businesses to cut ties with China. And then he took to Twitter again later in the day to joke about and let's just be clear you're talking about president trump yes yeah, yeah i i'm very clear on this uh when we talk about the vilification of the media the enemy of the people they can make anything bad because they are the fake fake disgusting news when the uh chairman of the federal reserve is compared to the nightmare enemy of the united states the chinese tweeting who is our bigger enemy jay powell or chairman xi and of course the chinese don't deserve it either 1000 mainland firms tumbled by the maximum allowed 10 percent daily limit the chinese losses were the biggest in an asia-wide sell-off triggered by mr trump's tweets these are all indicators that we should be attentive to and rather than wring our hands in despair of the moment I think we 
return to our the strength of the promise of the Declaration of Independence, and we all become experts about the Constitution. And that's why this is so important. Freedom of opposition politically uh, under authoritarian regimes, they're vilified or they're ostracized or they're victimized. In this country, we can't permit that to happen. And understanding our rights and understanding where we fit into our capacity to govern and how we have an obligation and real patriotism, real patriotism is about seeing the flaws in our government, having the courage to point them out and having the guts to make a difference. That's where real patriotism comes in, not the fake flag-hugging patriotism that we see from time to time, which is nationalism. I'm talking about real patriotism. And so as Americans, if Americans are despairing of the moment, Americans can take heart in the fact that no matter who is in the West Wing of the White House or no matter what the legislature looks like, it's not going to be able to make the fundamental profound changes in those governing documents to change our democracy. We're a bit uh, rusty right now at this. Now is the time for us all to become experts on this issue. Let me talk about your own personal experience. You retired from the Marine Corps in 2013 with uh, four stars on your shoulder. I did. Had you noticed this shift that the pendulum had started to swing in favor of the authoritarians at that point, or did this come later? It really wasn't quite as obvious to me before I retired. Um, I had the, the great honor of commanding a 50-nation coalition. So I had the chance In to, Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, that's right. I, and I had the chance uh, to see a lot of, uh, of the world in the context of how the troops operated, how the countries operated. It was not apparent to me at the time that uh, we were beginning to see some uh, slips at the political level. Uh, later, President Obama would ask me to assist him in the global coalition. That was started out as 65 countries. Once again, those countries, by and large, were very forthcoming in their willingness to acknowledge American leadership on this awful moment of uh, the rampage of Daesh through Syria and Iraq. And that common vision, I attribute to the fact that the United States, in essence, defined the problem. And it defined the problem as one that was about humanity and human rights and the sovereignty of Iraq and the issues associated with uh, Syria. So in those two coalitions, 50 nations and 65 nations, I didn't detect inherently the slip to illiberalism. It wasn't until later that it became apparent to me as I began to think about it. And then what did you start to see that really opened your eyes to this shift? <laughs> One uh, event was I had a speaking engagement in Florida uh, the night before the inauguration. And... Uh, I'd done a lot of work with, in Israel in conjunction with the uh, Middle East peace process under the Obama administration, led by Secretary Kerry, and I'd worked with him very closely, and Israeli leaders and Palestinian leaders who, in many respects, had been quite committed, or at least appeared to be quite committed, to a two-state outcome. And I think we all understand that the two-state outcome is the rational, strategic outcome that we desire. So I spent a lot of time working on that. Eventually, the Gaza war uh, put paid to the process, and we called it off for a while. So I'm in Florida. It's, I think, the 19th of January, 2017. Delivered my remarks the night before. The next morning... What's the event? It's a speaking event in uh, Jupiter Beach uh, in Florida. It's a community, mm -hmm. uh, many of whom are associated with Brookings and, and, uh, and their good friends. And it was an international relations uh, conversation. So the next day is the inaugural address, and I think we all have our own personal memories of that address and, and some of the 
key points, one of which, of course, was that the United States, for all intents and purposes, was backing away from its traditional emphasis on human rights, uh, which was, you know, a real problem uh, for me. A new vision will govern our land. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. Every decision on trade, on taxes, on immigration, on foreign affairs will be made to benefit American... And I got on an airplane that afternoon and flew to Israel uh, for a conference. And the sense amongst some of the politicians that I saw, none of whom had largely been involved in, in, Israel, in Israel, in moving us towards a two-state outcome. So these are different people than I had traditionally been involved with. Meaning primarily politicians on the right in the Likud and other parties? Well, on the right, Mm -hmm. and they were from many different parties. Mm -hmm. Their sense that with the inauguration of Donald Trump, that this whole American commitment to a two-state outcome was probably going to be changed or would change or something else would be tolerated by the United States government. And I can remember very specifically, uh, again, this is less than 24 hours after the inauguration, I can remember a, a politician giving a speech uh, at one particular moment where, of course, most of us had grown up with the term Palestinian Authority as being the hopeful precursor to a Palestine in a two-state outcome. This particular, I, I, I remember being uh, really stunned by this, the, this particular politician was quite enthusiastic in the aftermath of the American inauguration and talked not about the Palestinian Authority but now the Palestinian autonomy, hmm. an, an entity that would exist in a binational state. Uh, so that was the, the first real manifestation of this. I'm looking at two state and one state, and I like the one that both parties like. I'm very happy with the one that both parties like. I can live with either one. Uh, I thought for a while the two state looked like it may be the easier of the two. But honestly, if Bibi and if the Palestinians, if Israel and the Palestinians are, are happy, I'm happy. And then the one they like the there were other occasions where we could see that very clearly the, the United States, as I would deal with international partners, the sense was that the United States was harder on its allies now in a bilateral sense as opposed to pursuing multilateral transformational relationships than we had ever been before. And both what it was harder to be an ally and a friend and easier to be an authoritarian or an illiberal leader. And so when, uh, when we see some of those leaders welcomed into the White House uh, and celebrated. Victor Orban has uh, done a tremendous job in so many different ways, highly respected respected all over Europe, uh, probably like me, a little bit controversial, but that's okay. That's okay. You've done a good job. Uh, when we see some of our closest traditional allies being uh, criticized in an ad hominem manner, uh, personally criticized. Give us an example. Well, Macron. While still aboard Air Force One, he tweeted, President Macron of France has just suggested that Europe build its own military in order to protect itself from the U.S., China, and Russia. Very insulting. Uh, Angela Merkel. The German people are going to end up overthrowing this woman. I don't know what the hell she's thinking. Justin Trudeau. Oh, I have a good relationship with Justin Trudeau. I really did. I, other than he had a news conference, 
that he had because he assumed I was in an airplane and I wasn't watching. He learned that's going to cost a lot of money for the people of Canada. When we see some of the closest allies we've had on the planet whose troops fought alongside the United States, not because they were threatened, but because the United States was threatened, and who paid for that dedication to the relationship with the United States with the very blood of their troops, only to be excoriated. When we're talking about being in love with uh, uh, Kim Jong-un. Well, he is very talented. Anybody that takes over a situation like he did at 26 years of age and is able to run it, and run it tough, I don't say or nice. the, the tolerance of the uh, adventure in Yemen uh, when the Congress seeks to limit American arms support to the Saudi-led coalition only to have the president overturn that. Look, if you're a strong man overseas, those are very powerful signals that there will be few international restraining influences, few efforts by the United States to lead a global community of nations that can adjust behavior, uh, now is your moment. And that, that is what concerns me, and I think it's what concerns many of us who have seen this in action. Okay, General Allen, now for the really hard part. How do we fix this whole f set of problems that we're talking about that can be summarized as a slide towards illiberalism and authoritarianism? I, you know, I had a chance to teach a class to bunch of young students at UDC, University of District Columbia, and one of the things I talked about was many of the greatest problems that we face in the world today can be solved by leadership. My hope would be that the new president, whoever she is or whoever he is, will make early decisions that very clearly and unambiguously make the case that America is returning to the values that this world has expected of us since the end of World War II and the Cold War. So let's say that on January 19th, 2021, say you're invited into, uh, well, it wouldn't be the Oval Office yet because the new office holder won't be there yet, but you're invited to a hotel near the White House to advise the uh, incoming president on what she should do mm -hmm. when she takes office a couple of days later to start to address this. What would be at the top of your list? I would hope that before the sun would set on the first day in the White House for her, she would return the United States to the Paris Climate Accord. That we would immediately uh, call for a meeting of our allies to discuss the state of the JCPOA. Uh, this is the, the, the Iran joint, nuclear deal. Yes, the Iran nuclear deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, to see if we can salvage this short of, of uh, sleepwalking into a war in the Middle East, which seems to be where we're headed. I would uh, advise her that uh, within just a few days of taking office that she call together all of the ambassadors from around the world, uh, however many she's able to get, to talk about America's commitment to the community of nations, that the United States will stand for human rights. We will stand together with all of those nations for whom human rights, the rights of others, the rights of women, we will stand with those states. And we will not stand with those who are inherently violators of human rights and uh, the rule of law and the many things which we hold so dear and precious as Americans. I would also advise her that the world will be watching who she appoints into these early positions. Uh, so who the national security advisor is, who the secretary of state will be. Those early indications will be extraordinarily important to the world. It will 
create, I think, a sense of calm, uh, a sense of reinforcement uh, for our partners, uh, for those who believe that they have been strengthened or have been abetted uh, by the previous four years. It will cause them to have to think about what the next four years will look like as they have to deal with a president who stands for these things that I've just talked about. Uh, and then if I were to advise her on where she should go in her first several trips, uh, she should go to Europe. She should go to Brussels right away to speak to the EU and to NATO. And then she should go to the key capitals around Europe. And then she should go to Beijing. And on that trip, talk about a relationship with the Chinese, a relationship that is not based upon interminable confrontation, talk about those areas that demand that the U.S. and China work together to deal with the issues that will come home to roost for us 50 years from now in 2070, when if we've already passed 1.5 degrees Celsius, we'll be lucky if we haven't passed two degrees, if we can get the United States and China committed to dealing in a really comprehensive way with climate, she will have pulled off one of the great political uh, accomplishments of any president in our modern era. Now, all of the suggestions that you've just made are, of course, predicated on the assumption or the hope that Donald Trump won't be reelected president. But what happens if he is reelected president? Well, this goes back to the issue about uh, American leadership. There are still very strong voices uh, that will work in every way that we possibly can with the global community, that, such of it as still remains, uh, and will still work within the country uh, to accomplish these objectives. It will be less obvious, it will be more difficult, uh, but we can't give up on these issues. Even if the U.S. has abdicated important leadership roles in the world, there are still very powerful, strong, and influential American voices that can still have a positive effect in the world today. General Allen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Jonathan, it's great to be with you. Good to see you again. That's General John Allen, a retired Marine commander who's now the president of the Brookings Institution. Thanks for listening to And Now the Hard Part. I'm Jonathan Tepperman, FP's Editor-in-Chief. Our podcast is a collaboration between FP and the Brookings Institution. Our production staff includes Dan Efron, Rob Sachs, Maya Gandhi, Camilo Ramirez, Anna Newby, and Emily Horn. This episode concludes our series, And Now the Hard Part, a partnership between Foreign Policy and the Brookings Institution. Please check out our website at foreignpolicy.com for more information about the show and links to past episodes. And keep an eye out for more FP podcasts. I'm Jonathan Tepperman.